The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. I'll be giving attention this morning to Luke, chapter 17. Verses 1 through 6. Luke writes, and this is Jesus speaking. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we approach your word, we are never more mindful of the words that we just sang. We truly need you. In particular, we need the illumination of your spirit in our lives this morning. Apart from the work of your spirit among us, the words that I say, the words that we read will fall flat and empty. But if you, God, inspire them, if you enliven them by your spirit, They'll bear fruit in our lives. We pray for that this morning as we give attention to your word. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Everywhere we look in the world around us, we find warnings these days. Nearly anything you buy has some sort of a warning label on it. Do you notice that? Some of them actually make sense. Some things are are important to have a warning label on. And then we see the absurdity of our culture in many of those warning labels that you look at and you just find yourself shaking your head because they're so ridiculous. A few examples that I found in an article this week are as follows. You may not be able to tell what that is. That's a Jabra drive-and-talk Bluetooth speaker. The warning label simply says, never operate your speakerphone while driving. It's called the Jabra drive-and-talk. Let that settle in your mind for a minute, or on the box of Nitol, one and you know, once a night, warning, may cause drowsiness. You would hope so, wouldn't you? That's what you paid for. One of my favorites is this one. It was a, a package with um, uh, a, a, sort of a, a letter opener thing. You've seen these little letter openers you just slide across. It says, safety goggles recommended. I don't know who they're expecting to buy that letter opener. But if you need safety goggles for that, you're in trouble. Another favorite I saw was this one. Danger, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. (laughs) If there was ever one that seemed really unnecessary, it was that one, right? Or ladies may appreciate this one. A a hairdryer, instructions for use, do not use while sleeping. 
Now I understand early in the morning when you're getting ready for school in an early class, you may be half asleep, it's okay to use it there, but not while you're fully asleep. Or this one, a Dremel Multi-Tool Pro. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill. I've just got to meet the individual who says, oh, my tooth hurts. Let me just go in the, in the garage and grab the Dremel. We'll fix it right now. Finally, washing machine that simply has a warning label that says, do not put any person in this washer. Now, I don't know about you. I've had a washing machine my whole life. Never have I been tempted to put a person in there. I'm not even sure how that works. Do you just get up in the morning and be like, ah, I don't feel like taking a shower today. I'm just jump in the washer. I don't know. Some labels are foolish. Some warnings are meaningless, aren't they? We don't need them. But sometimes warnings are really necessary in life, aren't they? I have a dear friend that passed away just about a year, a year or so ago. His name was Mike. I'd known him for probably 20 years. Mike had a habit in his life. He smoked cigarettes pretty regularly. We were dear friends, did a lot of things together. And I can remember many times over the years having a conversation with, with Mike about smoking and reminding him that every single pack of cigarettes that he ever bought and smoked had a warning label on it that said, warning, these things may cause cancer. Well, Mike died of cancer directly related to smoking cigarettes. He bypassed the warning every single time he opened a pack. And I'll never forget when I found out that he had cancer. It was just a few weeks before he actually passed away. And I went to his house, and this formerly vibrant man who was full of energy all the time was basically an invalid on his couch. And one of the, the very first things he said to me, through tears, was, I was such a fool. I was such a fool. I said, what do you mean, Mike? He said, I knew this would happen but I did it anyway. It was a sad, sad moment. It's a moment I'll never forget. A dear friend at the end of his life directly related to activity that he engaged in willfully, and every time he did it, there was a warning right in front of his face, but he ignored the warning time and time again. And it cost him his life. Some warnings are frivolous, and some warnings really, really matter. As we turn our attention to Luke chapter 17, the warnings that Jesus is laying out here are important warnings. They're important warnings for anybody who follows after him. He's been speaking in the previous chapter. This is all one lengthy sort of discourse that's been going on now, extending for a couple of chapters. And he's been sort of shifting his audience as he teaches from the religious leaders who are sort of sprinkled in among the crowd who are opposing him, seeking to discredit him, seeking ultimately to, to disqualify him, and to find a way to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd. And the crowd in general that's gathered. There are folks in there who are genuine believers who are following them by faith, believing the things that he's teaching and following him in, in genuine reality. There is a broader circle of people who are just sort of tire kickers who are just listening and watching and waiting to see what's going on, not sure exactly what they think about all of these things. And so in this lengthy discourse, Jesus has sort of moved his attention uh, from moment to moment to the religious leaders and then to the broader crowd and then sometimes particularly to his disciples. Just previous to this, he told a story, a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus, a poor beggar who had died and gave us a glimpse into their eternal 
home after death. And it was a, a vivid and chilling sort of a story that was aimed at the religious leaders who were so puffed up in their pride. And immediately following that, we're told here in verse 1 that he said to his disciples the following. And so Jesus sort of turns his attention from that audience, particularly to his disciples. And he begins to give them some warnings, some warnings that are warnings for true disciples. Warnings that people who follow him need to pay attention to. Warnings that if we blow past them, will have potentially devastating effects in our life. And so this week and next, we'll look at some of these warnings. The first one we find in verses 1 and 2, and it's a very simple warning. The warning is this, do not tempt other people to sin. Do not be the cause of somebody else walking through the door of temptation to sin. Jesus says it this way, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. He begins with a clear reality that we all understand. In a, in a, in a world full of brokenness, in a world full of sin, a world around us that's fallen, we are sure to face temptations, right? All of God's people can say amen to that reality. Every one of us in this room understands what temptation looks like, what it feels like, the draw that it has on our hearts. Nobody is exempt from temptation. And the one saying these words himself was not exempt from temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. But we live in a fallen, broken world where things are not right, where things are a mess around us, and as a direct result of that, we deal with temptation. We have temptation that comes at us sort of externally. We have an active enemy, Satan, and those under his influence and control who come at us externally and tempt us to sin in relation to the things that they do. But we're tempted to sin also internally. There, there is within us sort of a, a sinful flesh that makes us vulnerable to particular kinds of temptation. We have weaknesses and we have propensities and we have appetites that from time to time go astray. And so on the outside, we're assaulted with temptation. On the inside, we have temptations that arise from the inside. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. You are not immune to temptations. They are sure to come. The issue is, how do we respond to them? Temptations come. The question is, how are we going to respond to them? Luther, in his inimitable way, said it this way. He said, temptations, of course, cannot be avoided, but because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. I would have never thought of that analogy, but I think it's brilliant. Who wants birds nesting in their hair? The point is we don't indulge them. The point is we resist temptation. But worse than indulging temptation, we find here in the text, Jesus says, worse than that is giving in to temptation and sinning ourselves. Worse than all that is being the source of somebody else's sin. Being the person responsible for leading others down a pathway into sin. Being the one through whom temptation comes into somebody else's life. He talks about temptations to sin here. The word is scandalon. It's a word that means to entrap, to, to trip up, to entice, to offend. It originally was a word that described a sort of a, a trap for animals. It was a piece of wood, in fact, that was kept in a trap. If you've seen like an animal trap, it's got a piece of wood. It was that piece of trigger wood that when the animal would come in, they hit the trigger wood and the trap closes over them. Uh, it's the picture here of this word. 
used spiritually, though, it's a, it's a picture, a metaphor for really any kind of enticement to sin, particularly the kinds of sin that entice people and lead them away from faith in Christ. What Jesus is talking about here in this issue of temptations to sin, he's just simply saying, listen, when you do or say anything that causes another person to trip up, to get off of the path of following Christ, it's a problem. It's a problem. When we do things and when we say things that make it easier for people to sin, when we do things and say things that make it harder for people to be godly, we're tempting them to sin. That's what he's talking about here. He says, woe to you when you do that. Woe to you when you do that. Woe to you when you cause these little ones or one of these little ones. That, that word is a, a common expression that referred to helpless sort of innocent children. It describes those who have the greatest need for instruction and the greatest need for encouragement. It's a word that speaks of those who are growing, who are ignorant of things that are important, that are particularly vulnerable to temptation. Woe to you when you, when you tempt or you're the one responsible for leading people like that into temptation. Metaphorically, though, here, Jesus uses it in a way that really refers to, any, to anybody, to any believer, to any follower of Christ. Those are the little ones. Particularly, he may have in mind the new believers that have just come on board. Back in chapter 15, we're told that he's attracting sinners, people who are like prostitutes and tax collectors, people who the culture would have seen as the worst of the worst kinds of sinners. They're believing Christ and they're being saved. And it's possible that Jesus has particularly in mind them. That he's saying, when you tempt people like this to sin, woe to you. You're in danger. But certainly the principle applies way broader than that. He makes clear it's a very serious matter. Woe to the one. Woe simply means there, there's, there's impending judgment coming to those who do such things. When you and I live our lives in such a way that our life becomes the doorway that we lead other people through towards temptation to sin, we are in danger. This is a warning from Christ himself. You are in danger when you lead other people into sin. And it's serious. When we become a spiritual danger to other people, we put ourselves in spiritual danger before the Lord. You know, he doesn't elaborate here on what kind of danger or what that woe specifically is. He does, however, use hyperbole to emphasize the seriousness of which he's talking, right? He says, this is so serious that it would be better for you if someone tied a millstone around your neck and threw you into the sea than for you to do this. Uh, I take it most of us don't have a millstone in our backyard. It's a less familiar uh, tool for us. We don't buy them at Lowe's these days. But that's what a millstone looks like. They're about four and a half, five feet wide in diameter, about a foot thick, made of stone, up to a thousand pounds and more. A donkey hooked up to the other end and turned that thing around and around to crush grain. The Romans were particularly creative in their the ways that they went about uh, executing criminals, and one of the ways that they would quite frequently do that is take a millstone, and they would tie it around the neck of the criminal and toss them in the sea. Can you think of a more horrific way to die? It's pretty awful, isn't it? I mean, the issue is it sinks to the bottom and pulls you down, and no matter how much you fight against it, you're dead. You drown. It's a vivid picture of horrific death. And Jesus says it would be better for that to be your experience than for you to be the one through whom temptation comes to the life 
of your fellow brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. There's a bit of hyperbole involved here. Jesus uses that as a communicative sort of tool from time to time. You remember, may remember on another occasion, he says, if your hands cause you to sin, what are you to do? You chop them off, right? It'd be better for you to go through life without hands than it would be, you know, for you to, you know, have your whole soul condemned to hell. So if your eyes, if your eyes are responsible for sinning, what do you do to them? Just pluck them out, gouge them out. It'd be better for you to go through life blind than for your soul to be condemned in hell. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't encouraging people to chop off their hands and pluck out their eyes. He's using a figure of speech that's just simply elevating the importance of the reality of what's being faced. It is very important that you not be the kind of people who tempt others to sin. The consequences are severe. At the very least, he's talking here about temporal judgment to sin. God disciplines those who lead other people into sin. When you and I, as believers and followers of Christ, are responsible for leading other people towards sin, then there's a price to be paid and God brings discipline into our lives. If that is the habit and the pattern of our lives, then really what what happens there is we're calling into question the reality of our faith. Someone who is constantly leading other people down a pathway of sin and claims to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is a living contradiction, and we have reason to look and question the reality of their claim to faith. It's quite possible that someone who does that as a pattern of life is not a believer, and their soul is in fact in danger, and it would be literally better to have a millstone tied around your neck and drowned than to die in that state. But the principle is the same, isn't it? It's a dangerous thing to be responsible for leading other people into sin. And this manifests in a lot of different ways. You and I can be responsible for leading other people into sin and into temptation to sin in a lot of ways. There, We can lead people into direct temptation. We do that by overtly sinning and, and calling others to join us in our sin. I don't know about you, but when... When we sin, there's, there's often this reality that sort of erupts within us that, that somehow we feel better about our sin if other people join us in it, if we're not alone in it. If we get somebody else to go along with us, somehow it feels a little less miserable or we feel a little less guilt. And so quite frequently when we sin, we entice other people into it. So we can directly do that by sinning and, and inviting other people to join us in our sin. A good example biblically would be right in the very Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. We have Adam and we have Eve and we have Eve, you know, giving in to temptation and immediately inviting her husband into the mix. He was there all along and had his own sin to deal with. But it was a direct temptation and encouraged one another. So when we sin and we invite others in, we're guilty of this thing that Jesus condemns here and warns us against, but it's not the only way. We can, we can be guilty of this by indirect temptation, can't we? We can indirectly be the cause of temptation in somebody else's life when we treat them in such a way that, that elicits from them a sinful response. We're indirectly causing temptation to come into their world. Parents, this is easy for us to do. When we show favoritism amongst our kids, when we're overly critical of them, when we set unreasonable standards that they can never possibly meet, we tempt them to respond to us in angry, sinful ways. It's indirect form of leading them into temptation. In general, there's a thousand ways that you and I sin against other people and tempt them to respond to us in 
sinful ways. When I come into your world and I pull you aside and I say, hey, have you heard about, have you heard about Steve? And I begin to gossip about Steve. You know what I'm doing? I'm indirectly tempting you. I'm bringing temptation into your world because the temptation for you is going to be to join into that conversation with me and we're going to talk about Steve and we're going to glory in his whatever. Sorry, Steve. Don't know of anything in particular right now to gossip about you. But the point is the same. When we gossip with somebody else, it's indirectly violating the warning that Jesus brings here. It's an indirect way that we become responsible for tempting others to sin. When we live and dress in ways that are immodest and we sin in the sin of immodesty, we have the sort of corollary type of sin where we're now tempting other people to sin in other ways in response to our sin. It's indirect. When we lash out at other people in anger, we, we tempt them to respond to us in anger the same way. That's an indirect form of leading them into temptation and being a source of sin in somebody else's life. And Jesus says, woe to us when we do that. We can also, we can also be the source of temptation for others just simply by our simple examples. Some of the people watch us and they see the things we do. And when we live in ways that are, that are flaunting the truth of God's word, and people observe us and they say, well, that guy, look at that guy. He goes to church. That guy's a pastor. That person is a deacon. That person serves as a teacher in the church. And look, they're doing this thing. It must be fine. And so they move on. By our, by our sinful example, we become a source of temptation to other people. Your life and my life, really, there, there are people watching us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how important you think you are or don't think you are. There's, there are people who watch you. There are people who are paying attention to your life. There are people that are listening earnestly to the things that you say and people who are watching earnestly the things that you do, whether they acknowledge it or not. People are paying attention. And our lives, in every way, our words, our actions, our attitudes, all of those things are doing one of two things to the people that are watching us. They're either leading them towards and encouraging them towards godliness or they are becoming a source of temptation and leading them away from Christ toward ungodliness. We have to be very careful about how we live and the kind of example we set. Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you when you become the source of temptation in somebody else's life. I think a final way that we do this is by simply abusing Christian liberty. There are a lot of things that are not necessarily sinful for us to do, that we can do them sort of uh, honestly before the Lord, but they may be a sinful problem for somebody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you may be familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I won't spend much time there. You can read it for yourself. But there's a controversy that's brewing in the Corinthian church over whether or not it's, it's right or, or sinful to eat meat that's been sacrificed at pagan idols, at pagan temples, to pagan gods. And so the, the, the eruption in the church is you have the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters not vegetarians, but meat eaters, that particular kind of meat. Those who say it's very sinful, the meat is now somehow wrong for a Christian to eat meat that's been sacrificed to a false god, to a demon. And there are other people who say, no, meat is fine. God made all the meat. It doesn't matter. Meat's fine. Meat is good. Eat the meat. And you can imagine the church splitting right over, the, over this issue. And so Paul speaks into that issue, and he says, look, here's the answer to the question. Meat is meat. God made meat. Eat the meat. Praise God, I say. I like meat. But he says to the people who have taken that position, you need to be very careful about how you exercise the freedom you have to eat that meat. 
Because in your eating it, you may be the cause of your brothers to stumble. That exercising of your freedom, if it causes your brothers and your sisters and the body of Christ to violate their conscience and sin, you should not eat the meat. Because of the very thing Jesus is speaking of here, you then are becoming the doorway through which you're enticing them to sin. So don't do it. Don't abuse your Christian liberty in that way. Although we're free to do something, although I may be able to say, hey, I'm free to do this. God doesn't hold me accountable for this. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Well, you should care what other people think. It matters. It matters. It matters a lot. Woe to you when you become the source of temptation for other people. Don't cause other people to sin by your words, by your example, by your exercise of Christian freedom. Don't do it. William Barclay tells a story of an old man on his deathbed. He was, had family gathered around him, and they noticed that something was bothering him. And someone asked him what was bothering him, and here's what he said. He said, I can remember when we were boys at play. One day at a crossroads, we reversed a signpost. And I've never ceased to wonder how many people were sent in the wrong direction by what we did. Fascinating thought, isn't it? A simple thing, moving a sign on a road. But this man's conscience was tweaked. It's the same kind of thing spiritually that Jesus is speaking of here. We can by our words and by our example and by our direction in indirect ways and by abusing Christian liberty, we, we can move the signpost and lead people down the wrong road. Don't do it. It's a serious matter. And I wonder if there's cause for us to reflect this morning on that issue. In what ways are we potentially becoming a source of temptation for other people in our lives. Are there ways in your life in which this is occurring? The ways where directly you're sinning and inviting others into that? Are there ways in which indirectly this is going on or just simply by your example of not living a godly life that other people are thinking sin's okay and that temptation is magnified in their life? God would call us to repent of that this morning. He would say, you're in danger. Warning. Don't blow past the sign. There's a second warning here in verses 3 through 4. Not only are we not to be the source of temptation for others, but he says, don't withhold forgiveness. It's a second thing. Do not withhold forgiveness. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Jesus turns his attention very quickly from his disciples' potential of causing offenses in somebody else's life to the issue of his disciples harboring offenses in their life. He moves from the issue of tempting others to sin toward the issue of holding the sins of other people over them and refusing to forgive them. That's an important issue for us because you and I live in a culture where we're surrounded by messages all the time and the culture around us does not highly value forgiveness. It does not. Listen to the messages coming from the world around you. Rarely do you ever hear a message saying, you really ought to be a person who's forgiving. You don't. Popular books and popular movies glorify revenge. Some of the most watched movies are movies where the whole plot line revolves around somebody got wronged and the whole rest of the movie is them taking revenge on the people that wronged them. And we celebrate. They pay money to watch. 
It's so real, you could even go onto any of your web browsers and you could go to www.revengeguy.com. Did you even know that existed? Revengeguy.com. There's a couple of screenshots from revengeguy.com. I can't even say it. Revengeguy.com that you could look at if you'll show those for us. Yeah, here's the, the, the front page. Have you had a tough day, week, year, life? Do unto others as they do unto you. That's the golden rule, Revenge Guy says. Celebrating 20 years of giving revenge advice to the world. Thousands of people across the United States, Canada, and the world have contacted the Revenge Guy to get advice on a lot of things that have recently happened in their lives and need to get revenge to regain control of their lives. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, the next page, you can see other things that are on the front page of Revenge Guy. Some of Revenge Guy's favorite revenge requests have been about bad coworkers and bad bosses. Sorry, Ashley. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying any teachers have gone to revengeguy.com, but even retaliating against their workplace and people who are owed money and can't get the other person to pay up, even dealing with the other woman that's been cheating with their husband or boyfriend, revengeguy.com. A website built around revenge. You can even get a Revenge Guy twill cap for $44.99 if you want one. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you remember a popular song a number of years ago by Carrie Underwood, country music singer. Do you remember the song, Before He Cheats? Come on, it's okay to admit that you know the song. I know the song. I know the song. It's okay to admit it. Really, it is. The song, 2007 Grand, I mean, Song of the Year by the Country Music Association, seven times certified platinum, two Grammys, a third nomination for a Grammy, the first song to ever have two, two million digital downloads. And the whole song is built around the, the, the singer, a female, who's got a, 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 either a, a, a boyfriend, husband, something that's been cheating. And, and the whole song is about her getting revenge for him cheating. And the, the, whole, the whole chorus, I didn't have this in my notes, and I think I know it, which is kind of sad in of itself. But she says, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. You guys help me if I get this wrong. Uh, carved my name into his leather seats. I, I, put a, I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe he'll think next time before he cheats. Have you heard the song? Come on, tell me I'm not the only one. It's a ridiculous song. The whole premise is stupid. Maybe he'll think next time before he cheats. No, he won't. What he's going to think is, I've been around this psycho. I'm so glad for my mistress. If I'd hung out with her long enough, the Louisville slugger might have been coming for me. It's not going to make him stop cheating. You destroyed his truck. You're probably going to jail. Two million digital downloads. Song of the year. It's ridiculous. The culture celebrates revenge, doesn't it? We like revenge. We love it. But the word of God, it shouldn't surprise us, is absolutely countercultural in this issue, isn't it? It says we're not to be the kind of people who do that. We're not the kind of people who take a Louisville slugger to somebody's headlights. We're not to be the kind of people who are regularly visiting revengeguy.com. We're not to be the kind of people who are holding grudges or seeking revenge or severing relationships or holding on to the sins of other people and holding it over their heads. We're to be the kind of people who are quick to forgive, who are eager to forgive, who want to be restored. But it's far easier said than done, isn't it? He says, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself in this area. 
if your brother sins, rebuke him. Particularly as in mind here, if your brother sins against you, I think and he's not talking specifically here about just sins in general. The, the, the message isn't, don't be, you know, go out and become the sin police for everybody in the world. The issue is, when somebody sins against you, go to them and rebuke them for the purpose of their repentance in order that you might forgive them. We're not to be people who sit back and take offenses and do nothing about it. We're not to be the kind of people who keep quiet when we've been wronged and just harbor anger and bitterness and resentment. We're to be the kind of people who, when wrong is done to us, we go to the person who's done the wrong and we address it. We go in humility. We go with a spirit of reconciliation. We're not to beat around the bush. We're to call sin what it is, sin, and we're to call them to repentance in a spirit of love and humility and reconciliation. And it's very, very difficult to do. It's much easier just to simmer in anger and resentment and bitterness. It's much easier, much easier to gossip and go tell everybody else how awful that person is and what they've done to you. But Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, you go rebuke them. Call them to repentance. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. The goal of the confrontation, the goal of confronting sin is always repentance of the offender. That's the goal. Anytime you and I go to confront somebody about their sin and we go there with a goal other than their repentance and reconciliation, then we are wrong and we are off the mark. And it's likely not going to turn out very good. The goal is that they would confess their sin, that they would repent before God, that they would own their sin, apologize, and be reconciled. And Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. When you're offended against, when somebody does something to you and against you, they sin, and you are the recipient of that sin, you go to them and you call them to repentance. And when they repent, you forgive them. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, probably the best resource on this issue, gives a definition of forgiveness. And he says, forgiveness simply means to release from liability, to suffer punishment or penalty. When I do, when I forgive somebody, when you sin against me and I come to you, you repent and I forgive you, I am releasing you from liability to suffer any further punishment or any further penalty of that sin. When I say to you, I forgive you, I am releasing that. No more punishment, no more penalty in any way, shape, or form. It's to remove the guilt resulting from the wrongdoing. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. You would think we would be the most forgiving people in the world, but we indeed are not. As a pastor, I can tell you, it's hard for me to forgive. And I can tell you, via the counseling I've done, that it's hard for you to forgive too. That apart from the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, we won't do it. It's hard to forgive people. Sometimes we don't want to forgive people. Isn't that right? Like sometimes we just don't want to. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. You and I are, are, are pretty good at evading Jesus' warning here too, aren't, aren't we? We sometimes practice a form of forgiveness that's neither biblical nor effective. We'll go to somebody and upon their repentance, we'll say something like, well, I forgive you, but just don't, I'm just not gonna have anything to do with you again. Like I forgive you, but that's it. This relationship's over. 
And I hope if you ever say things like that or think things like that, the words of the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, verse 12, come to your mind. When asked how to pray, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And a part of that prayer was this, forgive us our debts, O Lord, as we, what? Forgive our debtors. What if God forgave you the way you forgive other people? What if, what, if, what if you came to the Lord and genuine repentance over sin that you've committed and he, his response to you was, well, I'll forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Praise God that that's not how he is, right? We'd be toast, every one of us, all of us. We'd be lost. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We're to forgive other people the way God has forgiven us. It's a costly activity too, isn't it? When you and I forgive somebody, when we cancel a debt, the debt doesn't just go away. The debt doesn't just go away. We absorb the liability that the other person deserves. We pay a price that they deserve to pay. Forgiveness is hard because forgiveness comes at personal cost. Forgiveness is not just a feeling, is it, either? It's not just a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we make regardless of how we feel. It's a decision that we make in regard to somebody else's actions. When somebody sins against me, and I go to them, and, 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 and they repent, and I, I'm faced with now how I'm going to respond to them, what, what I'm doing there is not reacting on my feelings. I'm saying, based on what God has done in my life, I'm making a choice to do the very same for you. I'm choosing to release you from the penalty of this. I'm choosing not to hold this over your head any further. I'm choosing to let it go, to cancel the debt even if that's not how I feel. Forgiveness is not just forgetting either, is it? Sometimes people say, just forgive and forget. But forgiveness is not just a slow, gradual process of forgetting a thing. That's a whole different issue. Forgiveness is a choice and it's a deliberate action. When God says to his people, uh, when they confess their sin, he says to them, I will remember their sins no more. He's not saying he cannot remember our sins. He's saying he's actively choosing not to remember our sins. You and I, when we forgive, we don't just passively forget about an offense. We choose not to remember it anymore. Forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing either. It's not saying to somebody, oh, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's okay. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not falsely pretending like nothing ever happened. Forgiveness deals honestly with sin. It speaks honestly about sin and the effects of the sin in the life. It's honest about those things. It doesn't say, no, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it as if nothing wrong was done. What forgiveness says to the other person is what you've done is wrong and you and I both know what you've done is wrong. But because I've been so forgiven so much by God, I'm choosing to forgive you. It did matter and it was real and it did hurt. And we both acknowledge that. But because of how much God's forgiven me. I'm choosing to forgive you. We forgive because we've been forgiven much. 
Listen, friends, you and I are never more like God than when we forgive somebody of their offense against us. We're never more like God. We're never more godly than we are when we're exercising and practicing forgiveness. Godliness is not primarily expressed in memorizing a thousand Bible verses or reading a bunch of theological books or attending religious services. All of those things are good things, but godliness isn't primarily marked by that. Godliness is marked by putting into practice the truth that we know, and we're never more godly than when we go to somebody who's offended us and sinned against us and say to them, I forgive you. Forgive you. Not because I feel like it, not because I just want to, not because it wasn't a big deal, but because God has forgiven so much in my life, because I've offended him so many times more than you've offended me, because I've offended him in so many ways worse than you've offended me, choosing to forgive you. God says, Christ says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves, that you're not withholding forgiveness. We close with this. How do I know when I've truly forgiven somebody? How do I know if I've actually forgiven them? Thomas Watson says it this way. He says, we know we've forgiven somebody here when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, when we grieve at their calamities and pray for them. I like that definition from Watson. I think when we can exercise those things in honesty, we've forgiven. I think if we look at the relationship and we look at the offense, and we can't honestly say those things, then we probably have not forgiven them. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, says, says this. I think it's so very practical and helpful. That there are four promises we make when we forgive somebody, genuinely forgive somebody. There are four promises we're making to them in that moment. The first is this. It's a promise that I will not think about this incident anymore. When I say to you, I forgive you, I'm making a promise to you that I'm not going to continue to play the tape over and over and over again in my mind and rehash the pain and rehash the hurt and relive the trauma over and over again and get angry again, and get bitter again, and allow the resentment to pull up in my heart. When I say I forgive you, I'm saying I'm not going, I'm actively making a choice not to dwell on this anymore, not to think about it, not to stew on it, not to allow it to run through my head over and over and over again. A second promise, I, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. When I say I've forgiven you, that's the end of it. It's over, it's done, I've put it away. It's not going to come up in the next argument. Even if you sin in that way again, it's not going to come out of my mouth with, hey, don't you remember what you did the last time? It doesn't come up again if we've forgiven. I will not talk to others about this incident. We release somebody from liability for their sin. We don't continue to talk about it. We don't continue to dwell on it. We don't continue to ruminate on it with other people. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Hmm. You say, well, what if that's painful and that's hard? It is painful and it is hard. Apart from the Spirit of God alive and at work in your life, you'll never do it. I will never do it. That's true. You say, well, that's hard enough one time, but what if they do it again? 
What if they keep sinning? Jesus addresses that here, doesn't he? I don't even really need to spend much time on it, do I? He says, even if they do it seven times in a day, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. The point simply being, biblical forgiveness doesn't have limits. How many times have I had to go back to God for the same stinking offense in my life? How many times have I been on my knees before the Lord saying, God, here I am again. Here I am again. I've done it again. And so have you. That's how we want God to forgive us. That's the kind of forgiveness we need to extend to other people. We're never more godly than when we're doing that. I wonder who in your life needs to be forgiven today. Is there somebody in your family that needs to be released from the liability of some offense they've committed against you? Some coworker? Some friend? Where the relationship is no longer real? It's been severed by an offense? Some other offender that's done something sinful against you? Your spouse, your children. I don't know. I don't know the depths of your heart like that, but the Spirit of God does. And I, and I trust that in this moment, He is calling to your attention those people, those relationships, those offenses that need to be forgiven. And the warning is to believers. Don't be the person through whom temptation comes into somebody else's life. And do not be the person that withholds forgiveness. These things are dangerous to your soul. They bring you under the chastisement and the discipline of God. They affect your relationship with Him. They render your worship empty. They close your eyes to the truth of the Bible. They infect your soul. Don't do them. This morning you have two choices. You can hear the warnings from from our Lord's lips this morning through the Word of God in Luke 17. You can hear the warnings. You can see the warning label in front of you and you can take it seriously and you can repent where you need to repent and make things right in the way you need to make them right. Or you can do like my friend Mike with a pack of cigarettes and you can look at the warning and you can say, I see the warning and I hear the warning and I understand the warning, but I'm going to keep on the path that I'm on to your own destruction. It's your choice. Oh, you have to choose. Let's pray. God, if you kept a ledger of all of our sin and you held them against us, there's not a one of us who could stand before you. If you only forgave us when we deserve to be forgiven, we would never be forgiven. If you put limits on the number of times you would forgive us for a particular sin, we would all be condemned to eternal hell. If you only forgave us partially but held parts over our head forever, we'd be dust, every one of us. We hear your warning this morning. We hear your warning. We pray that as sinners who've been forgiven so much, you would make us the kind of people who are open and eager and willing to forgive much, even at great cost. 
Because after all, the forgiveness you extended to us came at great cost to you. It came at the cost of the blood of your very own son. Who died on a cross for our unforgiveness and a thousand other offenses we've committed against you. Help us to be godly in this area. Help us to heed the warning. And God, as we leave this place and go back to work and go back into our families and go back into our lives, help us, oh God, not to be the people who are responsible for temptation coming into the lives of the others around us. Help us to watch, Lord, our testimony and our lives carefully, our doctrine that we teach and the way that we live, so that everything that we're saying and doing is encouraging people to godliness and not opening the door to temptation. Or convict us where we need conviction in the area of exercising our Christian liberty. That even though we may be free to do things, perhaps we ought not. Lord, search our hearts by your Spirit this morning. Draw us to repentance. Draw us to faith. Draw us to action in the ways that we need to respond to your word today. Lord, for the one who doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior, I pray that in these quiet moments, as we sing this last song, they'd step out of their chair and come back to the back of the room where I am and others are and speak to me so that I might share with them what it means to know you as Lord and Savior, that they might be drawn to Christ and be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.